Welcome to the Don't Break a Leg podcast. I'm Danielle Prezanigan, a dancer and physical therapist specializing in the treatment of performing artists in Houston, Texas. And I'm Jake Manley, an athletic trainer and physical therapist at Pro PT in Winchester, Virginia. I lift weights, and the only time I dance is if I've had a couple beers at a wedding. Though we come from such different backgrounds, we're both incredibly passionate about the performing arts. We hope to educate you on a variety of topics about the health and wellness of performing artists to optimize your performance, longevity, and success. Welcome to the show. I just want to give you a real quick word from our sponsors. Pro, the company that I work for, which is a pretty awesome company if I may say so myself, is now offering virtual health and wellness coaching to help facilitate you staying active and achieving your goals. You guys can speak one-on-one with me, a licensed physical therapist, athletic trainer, and strength coach, um, to discuss training, injury, rehab, and learn more about how you can stay accountable, take back control, and optimize your health and fitness, even during this, this weird time. Our approach is evidence-based, comprehensive, and focuses entirely on you. One-time consultations as well as long-term programs are available. Regardless of what your specific needs are, we've got you covered. For more information, go ahead and contact me directly. My info will be in the description. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Don't Break a Leg podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. Surprisingly, it is not Shakira, but she is a she-wolf nonetheless. Dr. Ellie Summers is the team physician. Sorry, I'm going to redo that. You're not a physician. You're a physical therapist. I was just really excited. Basically. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Ellie Summers is the team physical therapist for the United States AFL women's national team, a performance run coach, writer, athlete, and owner of Sisu Sports Performance and PT in Seattle, Washington. The Sisu She-Wolf is her muse, her symbol of strength, grit, determination, and ferocity that she can overcome adversity and help others do the same. Ellie was a Division I collegiate soccer player at St. Louis University, where she obtained her bachelor's in exercise science, master's, and doctorate degrees in physical therapy. She's been a physical therapist for 11 years. Ellie specializes in work with runners and sporting athletes, helping them return to performance and get back to activity with more joy than they thought possible. Ellie, Danielle, and I are so pumped to have you on the show. Welcome to the Don't Break a Leg podcast. I am so honored to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, um, in, I guess in the, the realm of like she-wolf puns, do you have a she-wolf in your closet? I don't. I wish I wish I did. I have them on my walls. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm They're sorry. Just, sure. I had to. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. So I've been following you on the, the Instagrams for a very long time now. I feel like I've made several memes and tagged you in them. I don't, we haven't actually like really DM'd, but I've interacted with you like in the, the comments. We're not, usually we're in agreement. I don't think we've ever fought each other in the comments section. <laughs> um, <laughs> but for those of, for those of our listeners that maybe don't follow you on Instagram, um, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah. So I think, you know, my bio captured it decently well. Um, I think my, my biggest identity piece right now is my business in Sisu. 
And uh, I try to emulate that a little bit on social media as well, um, which means that I'm, you know, I really want to be an advocate for people and specifically for women. And I think that's always what I'm trying to keep my eye on um, when I'm posting to social media. And so, yeah, that's a little bit about me in that regard. You know, outside of, of work and business, you know, I'm, I'm a lifter. I run. Um, I was playing soccer when soccer was happening, but it's not <laughs> happening anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, I bake bread. I have two dogs. I have a wonderful husband, Elliot Feldman. He's also a physical therapist um, and generally living a very fun, joyful life here in Seattle. What kind of bread do you bake? (laughs) (laughs) The food. Here we go. The food. Um, I tend to stick to a pretty classic, no, um, no need white loaf of bread. Uh, That's like just easy. Like, you know, I can cook it once a week and make two loaves and be good for the week and not have any issues. I experimented a little bit with sourdough and that was a little more challenging. (laughs) So, you got to feed the starter. I know. You got to keep it growing. I know. Uh, so I haven't gotten quite into going much further beyond uh, the classic just no need white bread. Now, do you do like a loaf pan? Do you do like more of a like a round loaf or not quite yeah, a baguette? Rustic, like a, yes, I do artisanal. the loaf. <laughs> yes. Baked in a cast iron. Um, now I can't say what it's called. It's Friday, you know, the cast <laughs> iron thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and do you, so like, cause I've, so I've, I, in the words, it's Friday. In my spare time, sometimes I like to watch a lot of cooking, baking, and, uh, you know, just various kitchen type videos. Because I like to be well-rounded. I'm kind of a round person in general, but I like to be well-rounded. <laughs> um, what do you find a benefit to using cast iron over like a traditional pan? Uh, that's a great question. I actually don't know uh, because I only started baking bread this way, and okay. that's the way that I've stuck with. Um, mm-hmm. I would say my my guess is that it's better. <laughs> it seems fancy. I have, Yeah, I have no objective data to tell me that's true, Um, but it looks really pretty when it comes out and cooks really nice. And I have discovered that storing the bread in the cast iron really helps the bread stay good for longer so you don't get like the crusty bits. It's like armor. It's like bread armor. It's bread armor and it works wonderfully well. Yeah. So, so moving away from bread, um, I might as well just ask you the food question now. What is your favorite Seattle food? Seattle specific? Yeah. You know, I don't know that we have a ton of Seattle specific food. Probably most people would say salmon, and I like salmon, but um, not that much. And then on top of that, it's, you know, it's like Asian food. We have just like such a good... Uh, like so much good Asian food. If so, you have Thai food, Danielle's gonna lose it. She loves Thai food. I do love Thai food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All the all the sushi that I've had here is fantastic. I mean, it's just like, you know, anything with fish, but that's not salmon. I'm I'm down. I'm glad we got the food stuff out of the way. Now this way, 
it's not the end of the episode and everyone's like super hungry and then we start talking about food. Let's go to the like the the heavy hitter question that we would like to talk about. And that is one of the things that we see in the performing arts world is that um, there's kind of a trend of either whether it's a cultural thing or I don't know what exactly may perpetuate it. It could be a societal thing as well. But a lot of times we see that um, dancers have a hesitancy to seek out medical assistance. And whether that be because they're afraid to, you know, get pulled from performance or whether they feel that they can't advocate for themselves the way that they want to. Um, I think medical access in the female population in general, but more specifically, you know, for our population of performing artists, I think is is something that we should talk about. And I know it's something that you're quite passionate about. So we were just wondering what your thoughts were. Yeah, you know, I see that too. And while dancers and the performing arts aren't my primary population, I do work with a handful of that group. And I think what I notice is that um, a, a number of those young women are maybe given the message that they have to continue to push through things um, or, you know, be stoic about what they're feeling. And, you know, on the physical therapy side, you know, I, when they've come to see me, they've sought out my services at that point. And usually for me, it comes down to having an open discussion about what they're going through and experiencing and hopefully advocating for them and demonstrating that they can advocate for themselves. And I think, you know, it's unfortunate that we kind of have to help these young people advocate for themselves. But I think that's a big piece of how I work with the athletes here. And that's across the board. So even with um, performing artists and other types of athletes is teaching them how to advocate for themselves, how to stand up and say, you know, this isn't comfortable for me today. Um, I don't want to do it. And sometimes that just means saying, you know, use me as your excuse, whatever they need to do. But I think it opens the door of opportunity for them to know that it's safe to do those sorts of things. What kinds of barriers do you see or, or challenges that we face as clinicians? Like why, why, why are female athletes feeling like they can't advocate for themselves or why do they feel pr- the pressure that they do sometimes? That's a really great question. I don't, I, you know, I don't know how, are we going to go there? Let, let's go down the <laughs> okay. rabbit hole. Let's do it. Yeah. You know, you plenty of time. <laughs> I think it has to do with the patriarchy. Um, this is a theory, you know, of course there, I don't really have hard evidence to prove that this is true, but there's the way that our systems are set up are designed to, to make women feel smaller Um, you know, when we do speak up, oftentimes we're not heard or listened to. So you get conditioned this way, um, at a very young age to, to really say, well, people aren't listening to me anyway. So what's the point? And I think, you know, that conditioning really stems from patriarchal ideas, which is like the women shouldn't have a voice in this circumstance. And, you know, I don't know if it's just specific sports, it's certainly not, but, um, I think that, that's kind of like my feeling of it, having been a young athlete myself and and growing up now to be an adult and seeing the world through a different lens. You know, I worked at um, Seattle Children's Hospital for five years and worked in the sports medicine department with youth athletes. And, you know, the girls were the ones that were quiet. They weren't as forthcoming about their symptoms. Um, they weren't as 
you know, just aggressive in approaching their rehab and care. And I think I, I really learned that being an advocate for them was so valuable through a number of different lenses. And I think part of that is just building them up, you know, as a clinician, you know, we're, we're sort of trained, like we need to pick apart the things that are going wrong, right. To help them move forward. And I think for young athletes, especially female athletes, it's, the opposite. You have to find the things that are going well, tell them what those things are, and really show them the way and path forward through positive um, positive interactions and communication. No, I never thought about that, but I feel that my experience at Texas Children's has been pretty similar, that the females tend to hold back what they're feeling, and I have to pull it out of them, whereas, you know, the boys are like, oh yeah, like I went and did this and it kind of hurt, but like, whatever, like it's fine, you know? And I think it's interesting that you hit on patriarchy, which I also don't want to dive too deep into, but being in the dance world and seeing, you know, the leadership that develops in that, I'll say sport, just to say it, the teachers are typically split male and female, though I always viewed my female teachers as more of mentors and people I could look up to, whereas the men were always scary and you could never say you were injured or anything. And then moving into higher levels of the art, the choreographers in dance are the people who were setting the works and who were hiring you to do things are predominantly male. And there's been a huge push in the professional dance world to get more female choreographers because there is a huge disparity between it. And also directors are predominantly men, so the ones who are actually paying you. So it's interesting when you look at it from that view that it kind of falls in line with other sports where men are really in the leadership positions and we are trying to get women up there, but it's taking a very, very long time. Yeah, and it aligns with our profession as well. I mean... I think there are there are a ton of um, female leaders in our profession, right? There are tons of them, but I think the ones that just were conditioned to think of most uh, readily, like off the cuff, tend to be men, and that's true for me. And you know, I am consistently working to undo some of that bias training, but I think you know, men just tend to be much more. Uh, a little bit louder, a little bit more present, a little bit more fearless in how they approach um, showing up in the world. And, you know, that just means that women have to approach it maybe in a different way. And that's why I think, like, we don't have to do it the way that a man does it. But certainly we have to start considering ways that we can, we can you know, foster relationships um, and keep girls in sport for longer, um, you know, really build them up to give them that support system and structure they need so that they can continue to engage in activity in a positive way. And I know, I know that that's something that you, I've seen you speak about on your Instagram page quite a bit is the, the lack of, I guess, equality in, in online social spaces and social media. Like, and it was something that like, I, until you had brought that up, I was just like, I had no idea. Yeah. And I feel I I feel very ignorant um, just being a man sometimes because like I don't think about those implicit biases and I I just don't know. And that's why I like having these conversations because it's like, huh, okay, yeah, yeah. that was probably a little bit messed up or like maybe we need to do some more stuff. And that's why like honestly I really like being on this podcast because it's very much like a lot of like really 
cool, badass women that talk about the stuff <laughs> I'm passionate about. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think I think when you look at, at social media, the things that I notice that are sort of triggers for me are when you know a uh, a man with a decent number of followers does a post and tags you know, 20 people and they're all men, all of them, you know, and like, it's just, it's just what you do, you know? And so like, that's, it's not necessarily a man's fault that that's what he does. Because I think as we had talked about before we started the podcast, you know, you're, you operate in your comfort zone and you operate with like those that are like-minded to you. And that's who's going to come to your mind most presently. And I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done to really like dismantle that within yourself. And I think that's like where it has to start. You know, I think early on I would do, you know, call outs and be a little bit more vocal to people directly. Um, and it's just really not worth the time and energy. You know, I think with what has happened this week in our country, it really starts with having these conversations for one, listening to them, and then implementing things to make changes. You know, it's something that I started doing years ago because I, I saw all this happening was, you know, I just try to make it a really solid effort to follow a bunch of different people, follow a bunch of different women, a bunch of different women who, you know, aren't physical therapists, um, people of color, following uh, LGBTQ communities, like, like really expanding beyond my comfort zone so that I can listen and and learn from them and hopefully continue to do better for them. Um, you know, and so long ago, you know, I spoke at the Women in Physical Therapy Summit. What was that? 2017, I think. And my biggest message was that we need to amplify women's voices. And, you know, like that was what I wanted for people to be doing was just being present about knowing that, you know, if you've got a list of 10 people trying to say, okay, maybe I don't have 10 women I want to tag on this, but maybe I have two or three at minimum. Can I start, you know, making this more equal and equitable? And then dealing with some of the other intersections that go with that, right? Am I amplifying somebody who's got, you know, um, a totally different practice than mine? Am I amplifying a black person, like somebody who I've grown to respect and trust their opinions? It's just a constant practice. And I, I mean, I, I know personally, like I'm definitely guilty of that. If I think on the first podcast that Mike and I did, I mean, our first like 10 or 12 episodes were just like dudes because it was, it was just people we knew, you know, like we were starting it like, because we had no idea what we were doing. Um, and then we got an email one day from, do you, I don't know if you guys know Jasmine Marcus. Yeah. She, she like listened to our podcast. She emailed and she was like, Hey, um, I just want to say you guys don't really have a large female representation on your podcast. <laughs> um, I would be very happy to come on your show. And we were just like, Oh, you are a hundred percent right. Yeah. Like when do you want to come on? <laughs> and so I don't and know. Props to Jasmine. Cause that's hard to do that. It yeah. is so hard to speak up. And this comes back to again, like the, you've got to get smaller, right? Like don't speak up. It's too dangerous. It's too risky. 
I think in certain circumstances, we're constantly weighing those risks. All of us are. Um, but major props to her for doing that. Yeah, and honestly, like if it wasn't for that, I don't think that I would have interacted with many of the people that I have since then. Like yeah. Steph wouldn't have come on the podcast. I don't think I would have known like Taylor Eckle and Mel. Um, just like so many people, like Shelby Miller, Danielle Sigmund, Danielle Farzanigan. You know, like all these things. Like I wouldn't have met any of these people hadn't had it not been for something like that that just made me go, huh? Yeah. I never thought about that before. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes that's what it takes, right? It's just somebody pointing it out. And then you can start to do the work of undoing your implicit bias. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm still I'm still undoing a lot of my biases. So am I. I mean we all like, we all are. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, I tried to turn like I've tried to turn my bias into like I'm just supporting women, which sounds bad too, because I have so many male mentors and colleagues and friends that I would love to support. And also they get plenty of support elsewhere. They don't need me to succeed. They're going to be fine. Right. And so, you know, like it's undoing implicit bias and knowing sometimes you've, you've got to like really make the effort to say, no, I don't need to, to be involved in that other, um, that other person's elevating. One of the coolest things that you do, um, was, is the, the female athlete Friday thing. Oh yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So God, that started years ago. I was at a soccer game on a Friday and I just was like, Oh my God, I have this great idea. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to highlight every Friday, you know, a new female athlete. And it started first with like an interview process. And I just, I could not keep up with that, with the amount of work that I'm doing. And so um, I hired, I hired someone to help me with that for a little while. My sister was helping me with that for a little while. And then um, she couldn't help me anymore. And I hired Claire Mm -hmm. and Claire's eye was helping me with that for um, what the last like year almost. And just since COVID happened, it's kind of like fallen by the wayside because it's just been, just been stressful. And, um, I personally haven't had a clear head on how, how to show up on social media. Yeah. (laughs) It's so hard. Yeah. So that's how that started, you know, and there's the, the, the saying, you can't be what you can't see. Right. I didn't want my page to be about my body about my face, you know, like, like I wanted it to also emulate like what a woman's body can do, the physicality behind it that wasn't hypersexualized, um, that was really just about how incredible women are. I, I want to touch on this really quickly because you've made it into the major leagues of sport and being a female, making it Obviously, you work for a women's team, but can you speak to your story being a woman and making it into the ranks, even without a sport residency, obviously? (laughs) Can you talk about how you made it up there? Because I feel like the PTs that I know that are at those major leagues are, for the most part, men and are very vocal about being a man and, like, everything that comes with that. So can you speak to how you made it? So. Again, this comes down to me undoing my own implicit bias originally, which was I need to make friends with men in order to achieve these particular goals. Um, And to be perfectly honest, I hadn't set out to do team sports 
um, like since I was young in therapy, like as a young therapist, I wanted to do team sports and it just wasn't quite as present. It wasn't as real as it is now. Like there's more positions. Um, it sort of fell by the wayside until I started my own practice. And this happened because of the female friends and mentors that I have, like period. It had everything to do with the connections that I made with the women that I respected in the field of physical therapy. And, you know, I think like to an extent, there were like a lot of stars that aligned. Like I played a season of footy, you know, I played a season and got connected with the team, got connected with um, the national team coach, because that season I was like, I sent her my resume. I was like, if you need any help with anything, let me know. And then, you know, the next, was it the next year or that fall, I went to the sports conference in Vancouver and met up with Amy Irondale. Um, and she plays footy. She's on the national team. And if you don't know Amy, you need to know her, Squeaky Edgar, on Instagram. She works for the Brooklyn Nets, um, and she's also on the national team. She's amazing. She's like, like, you know, physical therapy world god. Um, she would cringe if I said that <laughs> to her face. Uh, but she's got her PhD and she's also doing the clinical side for the Brooklyn Nets. She's incredible. And I, you know, I had connected with her in the past because of the Women in Physical Therapy Summit, which Karen Litzy led. Uh, and so this, we were like reconnecting and in chatting with her that, that weekend, you know, I kind of was like, you know, I might be interested in team sports and just like planted a little bit of a seed. And also for myself was working through some thought process on what I wanted to do with my career and then, you know, stars aligned. I had sent my resume already to the national team coach and Amy was on the team and I knew Amy professionally and personally. Um, and she advocated for me when she had a meeting with the coach. And before you know it, I was being called up. So, um, that's how that happened. And I think since that happened, it is much easier for me. And since I've made such an intentional effort to know the women that are doing this work, I know the women in the sports world. Like I know who they are. Um, I'm actively seeking out their knowledge um, and expertise. And I think that's, that's really what it came down to for me. It's, it's interesting that you, you kind of mentioned that you need to like befriend the the guys, because I think it really does speak to like the boys club of a lot of pro sports. Um, and I did a season in the NFL and it was very much like that. Yeah. Um, now the, I believe it's the Eagles is the Eagles or the Rams. There is a head female trainer at one of those teams. It's Shereen Mansori. Oh wait, is she, Shereen Mansori was the, at the Eagles. She was the director of rehab, I think. Who's yeah. also a physical therapist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She's yeah. a badass. And mm -hmm. then I want to say there's, there's another, she might be, there might be a female AT that works at the Rams. Um, but it's like, we had a, an intern um, from George Mason and she was awesome, you know? Yeah. And it, it was just really weird to see like, I guess like the, the gender bias stuff that you don't really think about. And I think it like, it's something that, especially in like a, a male's locker room, like the NFL, like 
there is some really messed up stuff that goes on. Um, I don't think that all the players are like super respectful. And I think a lot of the older guard, if you will, of uh, the NFL still don't feel that there is a place for women in pro sports. And it's definitely, you can definitely see it. Um, yeah. And it, it's sad. Cause like, it shouldn't be like that. Yeah. And, and my, like going through school, a lot of the, the best clinicians that I had in the athletic training setting that I like consider still to this day mentors um, are female clinicians and they're yeah. awesome at what they do. Yeah. And yeah. it's just, it's weird to see that where it's like, I feel like in the athletic training world, there's not a lot of head um, trainers at like the collegiate level. You see a lot of females in head roles in the high school level, mm-hmm. but you don't really see it a lot in college. And then it's obviously even less in, in the NFL and pro sports. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's just like, again, the tiered way that women get pushed out of sport on across the board. Like Mm -hmm. we talk about the rate that female athletes drop out of sport. It's like four or five times greater than that of boys, you know? And, and so I think there's just, again, like there's just these extra sort of hurdles and barriers that women face to to be in certain positions or to continue to progress their career path um, in any in any light but sport is just notoriously misogynistic it's notoriously misogynistic um, which is why like I wanted to do it my way you know like I was tired of just like the old, you know, the old garb. <laughs> like I just, I wanted to do it my way. I wanted to create my own path and create my own story. And I just feel like, um, you know, in, in pursuing some of those dreams that I had for myself, whether knowingly or not, I was able to get where I wanted to go and still feel like I, I have more to, to offer. Um, and I just feel so fortunate, you know, I, like there are a lot of great women in physical therapy who are working in professional sports. There are quite a number of them. Um, but I happen to meet the one who understands this, you know, like I, Amy gets it and she knows that we have to, as women continue to lift each other up and, and provide ladders for each other. And I think like that's, such a, an important piece and aspect to undoing implicit bias for women, which is like, like really saying, I want to help other women be in these roles. How can I help, help them do that and achieve that? So what dreams do you have for the future that you have not accomplished? Like what is the next couple of steps for you since you're already at a way higher level than I could ever imagine? Like, what do you see as the next steps for you? You know, I I really want to travel with this team. <laughs> <laughs> I really want sports. <laughs> this year was like, I uh, you know, it was supposed to be a really big year for me. Like getting this position has meant so much and has brought me so much joy. Working with these players is like been the best experience I could have ever asked for. I just am grateful beyond words to be a part of this team. And so you know, I just, I just want to continue working with them and I want to travel with them to Australia. I want to go to the national team camp. Um, 
yeah, I want to continue to rise <laughs> mm-hmm. with them. Yeah, I think I think the zombie apocalypse is supposed to start in July, so <laughs> get ready for that. Sports is in a bad way right now. Sports is in a really bad way, and it sucks. Uh, yeah, it's 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 just gonna be a tough year for sports. On a on a lighter note, at least the cicadas didn't come out this year. Oh, did they not? We don't get them here, so I don't know. Oh, do you guys, <laughs> do you guys not get cicadas? Not at all, really. Mm-mm. Yeah. Oh. Maybe it's like an East Coast thing. I think it is. Yeah. Oh. We would get Never them mind. in Illinois when I, I grew up in Illinois. So going to have to edit that joke out because it didn't, <laughs> didn't hit well. Still um, funny. So just kind of going along um, the things that we've talked about, Danielle, what is what is your experience in, with, I guess, advocacy and maybe the, the idea that – dancers need to not speak up for themselves or because we, we've talked about this before too the kind of the cultural identity of wanting to push through injuries so you don't lose a spot and you're trying to stay like stoic and professional looking on on stage um but do you have any any experience or um opinions on on this type of stuff when it comes to the dance world yeah i know we hit on this before and i thought on it some more and i just want to push home the point that dance is so competitive and I don't think people, you know, give the credit to the art form that it deserves because if you make it to the professional level in dance, you probably endured physical beating of your body and some emotional and psychological pain just to get there because we all know that you're going to get injured at some point, but to continue getting casted and to continue moving up in the ranks in dance, you really can't give up at any point or admit defeat because you will be taken out of your roles, which makes you stagnant for another year. And then you lose your increase in rank. So it is really challenging to speak up as a dancer at the collegiate setting. It's a little bit different because you can say you're injured and take some off days, but when you're a professional, and you have a show that's coming up in two weeks, if you say you're out or you talk to a doctor and they pull you out, then your understudy is going to go in and they might have a chance to be leveled up and you might get leveled down or you might be out for a while. So I think it's terrifying for dancers to be injured. And that's why we continue to push through. And we, we just know that it's going to hurt a little bit. So what's a little bit or a lot when you get to do the thing that you love. So, you know, and I think this conversation is conversations that I consistently have with athletes, mm-hmm. you know, there's a risk reward, there's mm-hmm. a risk reward. And at some point you decide what is worth the risks. And I think like every athlete has to figure that out, you know, and that's like, that's just the reality of it. And, and, To a certain extent, I can influence their uh, choices, but I think it is way more valuable for them to be able to decide those things for themselves. And so as a, you know, a physical therapist and also now in the coaching world, I really work to foster that autonomy and that agency because... Um, if somebody wants to succeed, why, why should I be the one to stop them? You know, if they want to, if they want to like 
go through the pain and the challenge to become a professional, I should be supporting that. Like that's just period, end of sentence. That's where I draw my lines. Um, and I think, I think too often, too often, these athletes are made to feel fragile and broken and damaged. And like they're, they're making the wrong choices left and right. Um, and that it's their fault that they're in this situation. And I just think that's unfair because, you know, like they're allowed to be participating in sport. Their body is their business. Shout out girls gone strong. They're, they should be allowed to make these choices for themselves if they want to succeed. That's how I feel about it. I like along the lines of that, like beautiful little like soapbox right there, which was awesome. (laughs) One of the things you said earlier in this podcast was that you give them the ability to make you their excuse. Um, right. Like use me as the excuse. And I, I, I really think that that resonates kind of with your message as far as trying to empower the athlete and give them control back because sometimes it feels like there's so much pressure and especially in like the dancer gymnastics world, right? Like there's, you can be like a 14 year old gymnast and like your professional career could be on the line. Exactly. And there's and you so go to much a physical riding. therapist and the physical therapist says, stop. Yeah. That's a nightmare for any athlete, for any athlete. That's a nightmare scenario. And I think like we've done it to ourselves as physical therapists, quite frankly, like people are afraid to come see us because they're afraid we're going to say, stop your sport no more. You got to take six months off in order to get better. And it's just a lot of nonsense. Yeah. Sorry. Now I'm like, really? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) You don't have to apologize. This is what I want. I want, I I, I want this. Um, Especially because I mean, it's something that it's a, something that hits close to home for us in the, the dance world. Right. Like this is it's it's huge. And I feel like sometimes that ownership or that agency doesn't always the athlete doesn't always feel like they have it, 100%. Um, especially when it's like when the collegiate world, like it's your grade, it's your livelihood, like your career is dependent on your ability to perform. Right. That like labral tear that's positive on imaging. You know, like that could be if you decide to have surgery, like that's a whole year that's gone. Yeah. You have to repeat, repeat class. You lose money that you put in school. There's like so many variables that you have to control. And so like it, it seems that there's so much more riding on um, female athletes in the performing arts world. Yeah. And I, yeah, those are the worst stories is when I hear the dancer went to a doctor who knows nothing about dance, does a surgery that totally ruins their foot or their hip, and then they just have this vendetta against doctors and physical therapists for the rest of their life. They're like, screw them. They did the surgery. It took me out of my sport. Like, I hate them. They know nothing. And then that just perpetuates, you know, the whole sport and their fear of us. And, well, they don't know anything. They're just going to take me out anyways. So that's They will. Like, they will. You know, and that's why, like, like, as therapists, we have to be so good at listening and really hearing what the athlete is telling us. You know, like no question that a majority of people who go see a surgeon don't wanna be there. (laughs) You know, like they don't want to be there. 
And so we have to be able to facilitate safe spaces for these athletes to be able to express their deepest concerns and worries and how this impacts their identity. And I think like injury impacts identity, right? It threatens what you love to do and maybe what your livelihood is. And so, you know, I, I completely empathize with dancers not wanting to go see therapists. I like, you know, I maybe work in special circumstances now because I'm seeing people who are coming out of the system. I'm gonna use air quotes with that. You know, and I get their stories and it just, it's enraging, but it's so common that therapists are um, cutting and egotistical in what they think is going on. And, um, you know, I saw, I saw a ballet dancer this week, a 12 year old, and she's already been told that her, you know, her body is not right. Like somebody's told her that her feet are pronate and she's got collapsing archers to a 12 year old. What that means is my body isn't good enough to do this. That's what that translates to. And I just, yeah, I just think like part of my mission in physical therapy is to say enough with the nonsense enough. Like you need to take a person like that in your clinic and say, this young girl is going to grow up with body image issues just straight out of the gate because she's a girl. She's in dance. The last thing that I'm going to do is say, your body isn't built for this. Like that's just Mm. the last thing. But, But in fact, the very first thing I'm going to say is your body is beautiful and you were made to do this. Let's help you do it. She was so relieved, like so relieved that you could see the weight off her shoulders. Just mm-hmm. relax. And then you immediately loaded her with a barbell and put the weight back on <laughs> her next session. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can't be what you can't see. Part of like, part of having a barbell in my clinic is so that young girls see it. This is what I do on the daily, right? And it's kind of fun and exciting. Oh, I'm with you 100% on that. Yeah. That is like yep. my favorite thing in the whole world. Yeah, it's the best. It's yeah. it's so great. Yeah. I wonder if I'm sure the physical therapist said that she has pronated feet, blah blah blah. But it I wonder. To be oh. fair. <laughs> oh, shout out to all the podiatrists that use a hallux valgus corrective surgery to fix um, flexor houses, house, the FHL tendonitis and ballet dancers. Mm. That's my favorite or sesamoidectomy. Oh yeah. I love that. That's a really good one. Or FHL just, just detach the whole thing. And then you can really point your foot really well. I saw that on my clinical with Kansas city ballet. I was like, what? (laughs) But, um, I wonder how much of that negative self-talk that that dancer probably already has going on in her head also comes from her instructors and her coaches, because dance is a sport unlike many others, even in the performing arts that you are looking in the mirror and the technique is so driven by these minuscule adjustments that you have to make in order to jump higher or be on your center for balance. So teachers are really hard on kids from a very young age. And in other countries, like in Switzerland and Germany and Russia, they grade the dancer's body when they're like five years old, like they put them into these crazy positions. They look at their feet, they weigh them, they do all these things to predict how good they'll be in the future. And if they don't reach a certain score, then they're like, 
you're cut. Like, you're six years old, you're not going to make it. I don't think, honestly, it's not that bad here, but those same tendencies do exist that, oh, maybe you're not cut out to be a ballet dancer because your feet aren't, air quotes, pretty, or maybe your thighs are a little bit thicker, you're built more, you should be a jazz dancer or a modern dancer. And I I was told that from a young age too, like, you, you're probably going to be better in the ballet realm, like, you can't jump and be dynamic, so, like, jazz is probably not for you. So, yeah, I don't think it's just a podiatrist's fault. I think it's no. also teachers. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> Dance also is a racist sport, traditionally, right? Like, like black dancers get the same message because of the color of their skin. Is it Misty Copeland yeah. has talked about that oh, before? Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. like these things are very real for women across the spectrum, you know, and then you add the layers and intersections there. And, and, you know, to, to a degree, like dance, has to be that way maybe i don't know it's just never been done differently i don't know what the structures are for you know teachers and dance and like what kinds of messages they're getting to to improve the experience for young girls but i'll, I'll be damned if i'm the person to make that young girl's experience worse than it already is <laughs> yeah. like yeah danielle this is something that i've often pondered um when i'm up late at night just thinking about how the universe works. Do you think that we should not have mirrors in dance studios? Because, I mean, like, I, I know that we use them for certain purposes, but I also feel like a eight-year-old girl walking into a room that is exclusively just mirrors and having them wear, like, you know, a little bit more form-fitting clothing, leotards, stuff like that, which is pretty traditional in ballet. Like, does that inherently set us up for a group of individuals that maybe are a little bit more focused on what their body looks like just because of the environment that they're in? I think it would be hard to argue that that doesn't set you up for a higher tendency for body dysmorphia or disordered eating patterns. But speaking personally, I, I never found it an issue until I hit puberty and I was like, what are all these weird things coming out of like weird angles and like my body doesn't look as lean as it did. And that's when it got to me. So I, I never noticed it before then. And I think to truly exceed, I'll speak to ballet, to truly exceed mm -hmm. in ballet, you do need that visual cueing because if your leg or your hip is one centimeter higher, like it breaks what we know of as the sport, right? It would, it's comparable to like doing something wrong in soccer, like making a wrong cut. And people are like, why did you do that? Like, it's just so important to get it perfectly right. But I think other disciplines like modern and jazz that aren't as based in aesthetics do take away the mirror a lot of the times. I'm not sure if you've seen that, but in college, we would do modern class facing away from the mirror because modern is the opposite of ballet. It's break down everything that you know about ballet, make it earthy and a lot of like falling to the ground and just move your body the way that it's supposed to be moved, not the way that ballet makes you do it in all the ways your body maybe shouldn't be moving or doesn't naturally move. So when I teach, I like to have the mirror there, but then when we're doing choreography or having the dancers go through things at the end where they want to express themselves and maybe 
it's not going to look as beautiful to them. I try to take away the mirror so that they can be themselves and not worry about it. So that's my two cents. I'll get off my soapbox now. But. Please, welcome. <laughs> we need curious. more women stepping on soapboxes. <laughs> well, that's the thing is you guys shouldn't have to step on a soapbox. Yeah, like, but I'd like to. So. <laughs> I don't know. There's just one thing, one thing that I've, I've often wondered, cause like the more that we talk about stuff like body dysmorphia and, and reds and whatnot, like that's just something that, that I've thought about. Um, I don't know. It's, it's weird. Cause I feel like in a metaphorical sense, ballet is kind of like the patriarchy where like, it's just this very traditionalist, like structured environment where everything has to look a certain way and like modern dance and other form, other styles kind of like, just tear down the walls and you know yeah. do what you want. Yeah, um, yeah. I would I mean, bet though. I would bet males, male dancers and ballet dancers specifically suffer from the same things. Oh yeah. Oh definitely. They, they yeah. do. Yeah, because they have to be strong enough to lift these 100 pound women. It's not like they're lifting huge things, that, <laughs> but they have to be strong enough to lift and like carry them across the stage, but also lean enough to be in a unitard which is basically like spandex which you know so they have to battle those two things and there is you know the culture in male ballet is um i've seen eating disorders develop as all i'll say so i think it's hard for them but they also feel that they can't speak up because that would make them weak and right. frail so it's just such a weird like even because we talk about this when when we've had discussions on like mental health and stuff too you know, like the idea of like asking for help is a sign of strength, not a weakness. Like, I just don't understand why that's something that's become so pervasive in any like sport culture or anything that like, if you ask for help that you're weak, I just don't get that. That's just me questioning the universe again. Yeah. I don't know. It's not right, but it is the way it is. I prefer not to ask for help. You know, like I, I prefer it. That's kind of ironic in a way. Um, but maybe it's just, again, like the way you're raised, you know, in sport, mm -hmm. um, you know, nobody was, was helping me. Like I had to do it myself. I had to train on my own. I had to work on my own. Um, you know, I had some really great coaches and then some really bad coaches, and when I started physical therapy after tearing my ACL, I had a really shitty therapist <laughs> who I had to fire. But I like I sort of grew up in a structure and had a mother who advocated for me and who taught me how to advocate for myself. And so to a degree, like I think like pull them up by your bootstraps type of thing works well for me. <laughs> mm -hmm. But you're also at a point now where you're leveraging like what you've gone through, your experiences and where you are now to make it so that not everybody has to do that. Yeah. I don't want young athletes to have experiences like I had that were like, you know, oh, it's going to be too tough for you to go play at North Carolina. You know, like, no, I want to have give young athletes the experiences that I wanted, which is like people that are going to be there to help me along the way. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm letting that marry my frontal lobe right now. 
this has been great. You know, I think the the talk about advocating for young female athletes is really it's really personal and, and close to my heart, I guess you could say. Um, you know, having worked in like a peed sports environment for quite some time and, you know, having sort of gone the gamut myself of being like a really terrible therapist to hopefully being a better one. Um, yeah, I think, I think the drive to consistently improve the access to care, um, also like the quality of care for young female athletes. It's just really important to me. I think like they get the short end of the stick when they show up to rehab. And that's like why so many of them don't want to go. <laughs> and I, I can't blame them. So, so yeah. al along those lines, right. In the quest to becoming a better therapist myself, what would you say to a male therapist that maybe works in the sports realm? How can a male therapist um, be better at providing more of that advocacy and fostering, you know, independence and empowerment. I think honestly, a big part of it is stop, stop telling female athletes they're weak. Like I like just stop. <laughs> and I know, I know there are times where athletes are, they need strength, but that's the phrasing that you need to use not the your week. It's this is where you're, we need to get you stronger. You know, they're already going to form that narrative like, oh, I'm weak in that area. But the way that you phrase it can, can really push somebody towards the positive end of things. Um, so not telling them they're weak. And two, like stop pointing out shit that they can't change about their body. You know, it's like, oh, you've got pronated feet. Oh, you've got your knees turning. Oh, you know, girls have wider hips. And so, like, no, focus on things that you can change. You can't change her structure. Stop, stop talking about her structure as if it's bad or wrong. Like, it's just not, and it doesn't mean to be a part of the conversation. I'm hoping that many therapists across the country just stopped taking Q angle measurements. <laughs> God, first of all, Q angle. Let's talk about this. I did a lot of uh, searching on Q angle when this um, became more clear to me that this was a very gender specific uh, thing. The Q angle between men and women is basically the same. It is the same. And yet for some reason we've demonized it with women. Mm -hmm. I just want to thank you for providing me with a list of trigger words that I can use in my <laughs> comments between questions. Okay, and then what advice, say one or two pieces of advice that you would have for a new grad wanting to make it into sports physical therapy but feeling overwhelmed, what would you say to them? Connect with people. Connect with people that you respect and admire um, and, like, force yourself out of your comfort zone and be willing to learn from them. You know, I think like too often people connect with the intentions of wanting to get ahead and that doesn't work. Like you can see straight through that. You need to connect with the intentions of wanting to learn and grow. And I think like if you're willing to learn and grow, 
and you know you're you're willing to connect with people and be brave about reaching out um that's a really good starting place yeah i think it can be difficult as a a new grad even like one to five years out when you have so much information that came into you in pt school or residency and you're just like there's so much information there's so many people who have helped me get here but you feel like you know you're just like swimming along and you're like not really sure where you're going to go from here so yeah I, I think you're totally right yeah yeah and I always tell people you have your whole life ahead of you <laughs> you know I think like when I graduated it was like oh my god I gotta do these steps I gotta like study for the SDS I gotta you know get to the steps take the steps it's like, you know, the life steps, get married, have babies, blah, blah, blah. Um, and life drops bombs on that all the time. And so like, there's no formula. You've got your entire career to do these things. Like, think of that, mm -hmm. you know, there's no rush. There's just no rush. You know, I didn't make major moves in my career until I paid off my student loan debt. And then all of a sudden it was like, I had this free space of like headspace, like, Oh my God, the sky's the limit. <laughs> like I don't have, you know, thousands of dollars emptying my bank account anymore. What, what should I do with my life? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So it'll be different for everybody. There's no right or wrong way. Um, but know that you've got plenty of time. All right. Here's, here's my, ra I have two rapid fire questions for you. One, fire, what does that mean? How has a failure or apparent failure set you up for later success? Do you have a favorite failure of yours? A favorite? <laughs> favorite is, is tough. You know, uh, I, I think the, the most pressing failure that comes to mind is um, my failure of the SCS exam. And I failed that exam twice. And it completely derailed uh, my identity, what I thought I was going to do with my career. I thought, I honestly, like, I thought my life was over. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and looking back on that, it was a terrible couple years of my life. <laughs> but um, I, I wouldn't have been willing to pursue what I'm doing now. And I think, you know, I used that perceived adversity to my advantage and just decided for myself, I didn't need it to do what I wanted. Um, and sure enough, I don't like, I think that was like a big revelation for me was just to realize like I'm smart and I know sports and I know how to work with athletes. Like these are skills that I know I possess and that confidence in myself really helped um, push me along but I really had to have a come to Jesus moment. Like, you know, do I still want to work in sports? Like, is this still right for me? Um, it definitely is. <laughs> so. I had a mentor of mine tell me, cause I, at one point I was like, Oh, I want to do a residency and this and that. And, um, he was like, the letters don't make you a better clinician. hundred percent. It's yeah. what you do to prepare before you even set foot in that exam room that makes you a better clinician. Mm -hmm. That's nothing to do with how well you do on the test or yeah. what letters are after your name. If you're a good clinician, you're going to be a good human and people are going to know that you're a good clinician. Second I rapid fire question. I obviously believe that now. <laughs> Back then, I was like, the letters, really, like, especially as a woman, too, you, like, you're trying to prove you belong in sports and the letters, like, prove it. 
Um, it was very difficult, but now I'm like, screw the letters. You don't need them. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell the APTA and the, sp- the, the sports section. <laughs> I don't um, think they're listening. I think you're probably, probably not. <laughs> we have a really weird population that listens to our podcast. Um, last question for you. What does Sisu mean? Yeah. Sisu is a Finnish term, and it stands for hardiness and grit and the ability to overcome obstacles in the face of adversity. Um, in the Sisu language, it doesn't actually translate directly to English. It's just like that, that extra something that somebody has. So it's not related to the wolf. That's a different. No, not related directly to the wolf. I see. Okay. Yeah. The wolf was, uh, born out of work with my designer, um, and things that I was drawn to. And I think the spirit of Sisu, you know, wolves are like leaders and, um, I perceive them as gritty and ferocious, you know, so. Ellie, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on our show today. If anyone listening to the show wants to get in contact with you, what is the best way that they can do that? Um, the best way is probably email. And okay. my email is Ellie, E-L-L-I-E, at sisu, S-I-S-U, seattle.com. Um, but you can also find me on Instagram at Dr. Ellie Summers and Twitter, also at Dr. Ellie Summers. Um, yeah, I check most of my DMs as long as they're not spam. <laughs> yeah. And Danielle, if people want to get in touch with you, how do they find you? This is my favorite part of the show every week. So my Instagram handle is Danielle Anise underscore DPT. So it looks like Danielle a nice underscore DPT. And Ellie, I, I say this over and over, but I can't say this enough because Danielle needs to hear it every time. She is a nice PT. <laughs> I appreciate it every time. I do. If you guys want to find me on the interwebs, uh, my handle is TMD underscore the movement docs, which is mostly just like a amalgam of my brain memes and I don't even know what else is on there. Podcast <laughs> stuff. Um, it's a weird place. Probably some cat videos, too. Um, <laughs> anyways, thank you all for listening this week, where we spoke with Dr. Ellie Summers. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, complaints, or a topic that you'd like us to discuss, shoot us an email at dbalpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, don't break a leg.